It's Thursday, May 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. There's been a lot of volatility with cryptocurrency lately, especially for Bitcoin. China has been one of the key factors in the ups and downs. China recently took some actions that will likely ban all Bitcoin mining there soon. About 75% of all Bitcoin mining currently happens there in China. Tim Deschamps, tech policy reporter at Ars Technica, joins us for what is happening in the crypto market. Next, the pandemic has changed the way we shop, and some things like wider aisles and curbside pickup will be sticking around, while companies that don't adapt may continue to close. Retailers are expecting a spending boom, but businesses will have to give consumers reasons to get out, like new concept stores and in-store experiences. Hillary George Parkin, contributor to Vox, joins us for what to expect from post-pandemic shopping. Finally, the Army is getting some upgrades. New night vision goggles are being rolled out that look like the stuff out of video games. We all know the greenwashed look of the traditional night vision equipment, but the new goggles offer more contrast with soldiers, objects, and locations outlined in white. It also offers augmented reality capability. Dalvin Brown, innovations reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for the new night vision tech. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And there they said basically almost verbatim that they were going to crack down on Bitcoin mining and trading. There are a number of reasons for that, but the one that they list first and foremost is financial stability. They kind of view it as a commodity as opposed to a currency. So they're worried about people gambling on that. Joining us now is Tim Deschant, tech policy reporter at Ars Technica. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk a little bit more about Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency market. Uh, you know, it's already been a, a very volatile market to begin with, but in the past couple of weeks, we've seen some big swings. Bitcoin, the highest valued cryptocurrency, just dropped tremendously and, you know, has effects on all the other cryptos out there as well. China uh, really seems to be a key figure in what's going on with some of these swings. And it seems like they'll likely ban all Bitcoin mining pretty soon. So, Tim, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing from them. Yeah, it does seem that way. The latest news comes out of a statement that was put forth by the Financial Stability and Development Committee. That's part of the state council there, which is kind of like their cabinet. And there they said basically almost verbatim that they were going to crack down on Bitcoin mining and trading. There are a number of reasons for that, but the one that they list first and foremost is financial stability. They kind of view it as a commodity as opposed to a currency. So they're worried about people gambling on that. So how much actual Bitcoin mining is done out there? Quite a bit. So the most recent estimate that I saw pegs it at about 75% happening within the country. So if all that processing power comes offline or even a portion of it, that's going to have a significant impact. You know, you mentioned kind of some of the concerns from the Chinese government when it comes to uh, the volatility of it and everything. They also have other concerns about money laundering, trafficking, smuggling, and even the energy use that it takes to do this. I've seen videos online of people, you know, kind of showing off their Bitcoin mining things. And some of them are huge warehouses even. And they get super loud because they're just a bunch of computers constantly running. Tell me a little bit about that, those concerns. 
that's a big, probably a big part of what China is concerned about, too, though they didn't state it at the top in the statement that they put out from the state council. It's something that they've floated time and again, again, because 75 percent of the mining is done within the country, especially in coal heavy regions like Inner Mongolia, where power is cheap because it's on cheaply mined coal. But as a result, you're seeing some Bitcoin facilities drawing down 50 megawatts, which is easily the amount of production that you'd see from a coal-fired power plant. So I'm sure that pollution concerns are high on their list because China has one of the most energy-intensive economies right now. And if they're going to reach their goal of hitting net zero by 2060 and having 75% of the world's Bitcoin processing happening within their borders does not make that look very likely. I always love the comparisons of this takes as much energy to run a whole country, basically. And the Bitcoin network demands so much energy that it uses as much power as the Netherlands does to maintain its normal operations. So when you hear things like that, you think, man, that is an outstanding output of energy that they're using. And Tesla figures into all of this stuff with Bitcoin as well. Earlier in the year, they said they were going to make a big investment in Bitcoin and allow purchases of Teslas with it. Then they took that back and cited the energy and carbon footprint as concerns about this. And you mentioned in your article, too, how the Bitcoin cost of a Model 3 and the carbon dioxide. Explain that to us a little bit. So if we were to just look at the actual production of a Tesla Model 3, it takes just under nine tons of carbon dioxide to produce that and operate it over its lifetime, assuming you're driving it about 100,000 miles. When Tesla announced that you could buy a Model 3 with Bitcoin, the amount of energy embodied within that Bitcoin purchase was about 400 tons. And when they canceled it, it was over 500 tons. So you're looking at carbon footprint that is vastly more significant in the purchase of it using Bitcoin than even just in the production of a car. In fact, it's more than the lifetime carbon cost of a fossil fuel powered vehicle. So from a marketing perspective, it didn't seem to make a lot of sense for Tesla to continue accepting Bitcoin. Though I should say they still hold quite a bit of Bitcoin as kind of a reserve currency of their own. So what does all of this do to Bitcoin, to the cryptocurrency market? As we start seeing China try to back out of some of this on multiple angles, regulations, who knows if the United States will try to put forward some type of regulations in the future as well. I mean, what does this do to the cryptocurrency market? As you said earlier, you know, Bitcoin kind of foreshadows what happens in the rest of the market. You may start to see some splits uh, if Bitcoin gets a lot of attention paid to it. Maybe some of the others would split off and be able to navigate the waters a little bit differently. In terms of regulation, you're starting to see that in the U.S. The IRS announced that any transactions over $10,000 need to be reported and Several government agencies, Department of Justice, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and the IRS are looking into suspect transactions that went through one Bitcoin exchange known as Binance. So you are starting to see things turn that way. In terms of like the mining and stuff like that happening within China, if that were to be shut down, chances are you're going to see those computers pop up somewhere else. They might appear in nearby countries like Mongolia or Kazakhstan, or they might be shipped out and sold elsewhere, possibly popping up in the United States. The amount of money that these people have invested in the hardware is pretty significant, and I'm guessing they'd want to see some return on that. One last question on uh, China and all this, because we had also heard that they're trying to do some type of digital currency for themselves with their own dollar, the yuan. How does this figure into that? Well, it would certainly give them a window into what's happening with that currency in a way that they don't have right now with Bitcoin. 
Bitcoin isn't necessarily 100% anonymous. There are ways to track flows between wallets. And then when people go to cash that in for a currency like the dollar or the yuan, that's when you can start to see who's holding some of that. But they don't have nearly the access to it that they would have with other payment processing systems like Alipay within their country. So them rolling out the digital yuan, the idea there is that not only are they going to maybe limit some of the volatility that they're seeing in Bitcoin, but they're also going to get an idea of what's happening with that money, something they can't really see right now with Bitcoin. Tim Deshant, tech policy reporter at Ars Technica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Retailers do want to have people back in stores and, and shoppers also want to be back in them. So having some reason that they're going to be there beyond just the merchandise that's sitting on the shelf is going to be really important. Joining us now is Hillary George Parkin, contributor to Vox. Thanks for joining us, Hillary. Thanks so much for having me. I want to talk a little bit about the future of shopping post-pandemic. You know, a lot of places are opening back up. Some are already fully open. But as we kind of get more vaccines out there, the public is starting to venture out more. You start your story off with someone excited to go to the mall and how the experience was a little different. I personally have not gone out to a mall yet But this is kind of what we're back in for. Everybody's going to get back to normal. We're seeing things like wider aisles in grocery stores. Curbside pickup was such a huge thing throughout the pandemic. And a lot of those things are going to stick. A lot of things are going to be involved in the the future of, uh, of shopping. So, Hillary, tell us what we can expect to see. Definitely a lot of these habits that we have picked up during the pandemic and and retailers have worked so quickly to adjust to and to help us shop with are definitely going to stick around post-pandemic as well. So something like curbside pickup, now that Americans have gotten used to being able to go drive up to their local store and have their groceries or order delivered to their trunk, they want that to stick around. So Definitely, there are going to be stores that are going to continue to offer that, stores that are catering to something like uh, ordering online and going to the store to pick it up or having the item shipped directly from the store rather than from a warehouse. Wider aisles is one thing that stores have now realized are an amenity that customers actually like having a bit of room to walk around and look at merchandise and not feel crowded. And, you know, that's something that historically has been kind of pushed to the side in favor of having more and more merchandise on display. But now I think we'll be seeing that. One of the interesting things about this also is we heard a lot about store closures. You know, malls themselves were kind of already in decline pre-pandemic, but there's been a lot of store closures. There's forecasts for more, you just kind of retail locations that just can't make it through all of this. So what a lot of stores are also going to have to do is give you that reason to go shopping give you that reason to get in store. So there's a lot of new concepts that a lot of stores are working on. Michael's has uh, craft corners, maker spaces, they call them. Dick's Sporting Goods is going to have a bunch of uh, uh, interactive things, uh, batting cages, climbing walls. So this is kind of another thing that stores are really going to have to revamp what they do to draw those people in as well. Experiential retail was something that the industry talked a lot about even prior to the pandemic. And for a while, it seemed like, oh, maybe that's going to go away in the conversation because people are just looking for convenience now. They want to go, you know, be in and out quick from the store. But it really is something that now that we are in a recovery mode and more people are getting 
vaccinated and comfortable in indoor spaces, retailers do want to have people back in stores and and shoppers also want to be back in them. So having some reason that they're going to be there beyond just the merchandise that's sitting on the shelf is going to be really important. You mentioned Nike in your article. Tell me about what they're doing with some of their stores, because this is part of that thing, giving people more reasons to come, but it's also curating things for the community. Nike's interesting because they have so much data on their customers based on their membership program. So they are able to really tailor the individual stores to the customer demographics in that area. So they have these Nike Live stores, which basically take data about customers' buying patterns and engagement and provide a very localized brick-and-mortar experience. So uh, location in Tokyo would be very different from one in Tampa or one in Atlanta or one in New York City. And each one is going to really reflect the community around it. Yeah, the fashion is different. The buying trends are different. So that, that's, a, that's a great idea on their behalf. Finally, on all of this, what's not going to last? Uh, we've been talking about how things are changing, wider aisles, all that stuff, more detailed experiences. What's not going to last in, in all of this? One thing that was going away prior to the pandemic, and I think the past year has really expedited it at um, some of the less successful department stores and less successful malls that they were anchoring. So there are statistics that say that only 1,600 mall-based department stores remain in the U.S., and half of them are expected to be shuttered by the end of 2025. So, you know, it's not that all department stores are going to close or that all malls are dying. It's that only the the best of the best are going to survive because those are really the kinds of shopping experiences that can, in some cases, be easily replicated online. So it's really going to just be the ones that really serve a purpose that will kind of outlast this major shift in consumer spending patterns. Hillary George Parkin, contributor to Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Have a great day. So what's happening there is typically there's a green phosphor material that's baked into the goggles, and that's why it has that greenish hue. But they're using white phosphor um, in, in the goggles now, which creates, I guess, greater depth and clarity is what some of the officers are telling me. Joining us now is Dalvin Brown, innovations reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Dalvin. Thanks for having me. The Army is going to be getting some night vision upgrades pretty soon. They're already rolling them out and and training with them. You know, everybody's familiar with the old-fashioned night vision goggles. It has that green tint. Obviously, uh, you've seen them in movies and video games and everything. But now they're having taking on a new look. Mm -hmm. It looks a lot more like a video game. In one uh, version, there's like an outline mode where people are outlined with a white aura, let's say. There's augmented reality that goes into these new goggles. Uh, A lot of cool stuff. So, Dalvin, walk us through some of uh, the improvements that are being made on these. Well, I think the the big difference, the sweeping difference, is certainly the color. So we're, we're accustomed to seeing that sort of green washed night vision imagery, right? That's been around for centuries. But what the Army's rolling out is a pair of night vision binoculars that's more black and white, if you will. So it offers greater contrast. So what's happening there is typically there's a green phosphor material that's baked into the goggles. And that's why it has that greenish hue. But they're using white phosphor um, in, in the goggles now, which creates, I guess, 
greater depth and clarity is what some of the officers are telling me. Apparently, the green night vision looks really cool, but it can make your eyes hurt and the head hurt over time. So yeah, that's one of the big changes. But also, like you said, it's, it's, a, it's a more gamified experience. So they're adding a virtual reality elements so that you can overlay a map perhaps into the goggles. There's also some connectivity that's being added so you can perhaps communicate with others or show video or point out objects in your goggles that other soldiers could also see. So yeah, some pretty cool, some pretty cool stuff. You mentioned the gamifying of all of this and you spoke to the maker of these new goggles too. And he he mentioned that specifically that, you know, a lot of the people growing up right now playing these video games they have a lot of information in their field of vision when they're playing these games and whatnot, and they're kind of expecting that when they go into the battlefield of the future, let's say. So they're kind of using that, in a sense, when they're developing these things. As you mentioned, all those things that you mentioned, uh, you know, map overlays and all that stuff, they can do that now. And and you're right, that contrast makes it really clear. So hopefully there is no friendly fire, things like that. You can really identify targets and whatnot. But that was a big thing, is making it seem like familiar to our soldiers of today when you know they were playing those games as kids? That's certainly something that the company behind these things, Elbit Systems, said. And, and one of the things that they also noted, which you had mentioned earlier, was the addition of modes, right? These different sort of visual modes. And one of those is thermal imaging. And so, you know, traditionally, you know, it might be hard to see in inclement weather or, you know, if there's smoke ahead of you, with night vision tech, but with the thermal imaging, right, you're seeing anything that's giving off heat. So soldiers can now see more clearly sometimes in obstructed scenarios. And as you mentioned, the outline mode that really makes it look like a video game, that kind of also helps people see and understand with greater clarity what they're looking at. You know, if you're looking through these night vision goggles all night, from what I've heard, the perception isn't always as clear as you'd like it to be. So this new tech is supposed to help with that. This is all part of a modernization effort for the tools that the military uses. This is always an important question to ask. How much is it costing? The goggles from Elbit, while well, the company didn't break them down by specific cost, but the Army specifically has a deal worth $422 million to produce these things on a rolling basis. So presumably, that's a lot of goggles. Elbit, I looked at some costs online for comparable night vision tech, and these run from 7000 up to $12,000 per headset. But again, that's a one-off if someone's ordering one online, <laughs> right. whereas the military is getting them in bulk. But that's the cool thing. You know, civilians can play with these too. It's probably not the exact same models or setups and all that, but at least some of this night vision technology is available to people. As you mentioned, it's going to cost you $7,000, $11,000 or a little bit more even. It's not just the Army. Also, the Marines are also getting Elbit to improve their night vision tech too. Yeah, they are. And the difference with the Marines is that they have to add a clip on to unlock the thermal imaging, whereas the Army is sort of getting the whole shebang baked into the headset. And as you mentioned, hunters or survivalists or anyone else who would be interested in night vision tech can get some comparable goggles online that, you know, maybe they don't have the virtual reality, but they certainly have the white phosphor view. Um, it's, it's available beyond the military. Dalvin Brown, innovations reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.